Namaste, and welcome to the Modern Mystic Podcast, where we are exploring the mystical and the mundane and the magic in the present moment, bringing you ancient tools and technologies into modern day living, yoga, mythic, and healing conversations with expert and visionary powerhouses sharing their stories and secrets with you to help you live an inspired life. My name is Kilkenny, and today I am so thrilled to have Kimberly McGlan on this episode to talk about environmental and racial activism as path on the embodied mystical journey. Kimberly has a PhD and is the founder and CEO of the sustainable clothing company Grant Boulevard that is committed to high quality, sustainably sourced clothing, garments, designed and sold in Philadelphia. For the people, for the planet, she is a councilwoman in her local town, an English high school teacher of 9th and 11th graders, strategist, and a mindful mama as well. Kimberly, welcome to the Modern Mystic Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you for our listeners and for myself to hear your download Kimberly, what does it mean to you to be a modern mystic? Um, you know, for me, it means to, to really be settling into and, and receiving all of the, the energies of light and, and of, of positivity and optimism that I think surround us all the time and to, in that building that relationship with all of those energies, surrendering to the the wisdom and the and the, the the compassion that they have to offer us, and and for me that's what really dropping into this understanding of what it means to be a mystic in a modern sense, um, what it captures. Gorgeous. So, one of the things I wanted to check in with you that I have found is many people in quote unquote spiritual communities seem to have a harder time reconciling how a mystic is someone who not only does that inner work, but lets that inner work then inform and activate their outer work in the world. That's why I even called this podcast, not just mystic, but modern mystic, modern to be embodied in this modern world. And that there's no disparity between the two, but they actually are intrinsically connected. Can you speak to this notion and also to the different forms of inner work that you do to support and guide you on your outer activism journey in the world? So many pieces to that. Um, and, I, and I really liked how you framed the idea of, of the need to think about the inner before we move out, outward. And that's been, for me, that's been so pivotal to figuring out how I want to show up in the world. And, and how I'm going to decide what my, how I'm going to frame my own sense of purpose is. I was reading Octavia Butler since the quarantine started, one of her books. She's a, a Black um, science fiction writer who wrote in the 90s, literally 1990, a book called The Parable of the Sower. And in it, she, one of the passages that really meant a lot to me was she talks about purpose as being one that we have to essentially claim for ourselves. And I think that for me, Claiming that for myself, recognizing that it was mine to claim, led me to figure out where I saw suffering. And I think that for people who are thinking about, you know, how to listen to the divine, how to think about 
mystical forces in a contemporary moment. It's about, it's about going inward and seeing where our stories give us insights into suffering and then taking that, that kind of calling of experiences into, into, into the push out, which is figuring out how we're going to show up for that suffering outside of ourselves. So I hope that kind of answers the questions for me in terms of how these, those things kind of come into one conversation with each other. Really, really lovely. And would you mind repeating just for our listeners that source? You said it's Havia Butler, whom I haven't read. Absolutely. It's a work of fiction written in 1990. Um, and it takes place in the year 2023 is when the novel starts. So it's a fast forward. And, and in it, she explores a world where climate inaction has kind of um, reached a new plateau and how um, the, uh, the American democracy in, in all of its fragility has cracked further. And it's called the parable of the sower. So it's a reference to, she, I mean, it really, she, and actually Octavia Butler is very much so a modern mystic um, as a sci-fi writer, but also as someone who drew from Buddhism and Sufism in terms of thinking about her, her larger worldview. The title, however, comes is a reference to a, a story of Jesus from the New Testament, where he teaches these, these short courses to people by way of parable to help them understand um, how he wants them to see the world. Beautiful. I'll put that in the show notes for our listeners, that resource. That sounds so in alignment, and I look forward to reading that soon. <laughs> I'm wondering, because there are really two important topics that I want to touch on specifically, Dave, for our listeners and let's start with this idea of your sustainable fashion brand and clothing company of Grant Boulevard, which really seems to me is the heart hub of all that you stand for and that purpose that you have claimed, as you put so eloquently and are passionate about and work from there. So please first tell our listeners about your unique socially and spiritually activated company that is such a forward-thinking redesign of what a conscious company and conscious entrepreneurship can look like? Um, sure. So Grand Boulevard is it's my baby. <laughs> um, I think I started kind of that, that, that moment of, 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 of figuring out what I was seeing and noticing about the world first began to happen in 2016. And it came on, on the heels of a couple of a big, a big awakenings. One was related to um, design. So I, was, I spent some time, I, I spent my first, it was my first solo trip abroad. I was in Copenhagen in Denmark and I was observing the, the Scandinavian kind of approach to fashion design and architectural design. And I started thinking about what that would look like in my closet and realizing that I didn't have it, but that I wanted it. And, and then at that same time, I watched Ava, not, you know, like not then, then, but that same year, Ava DuVernay's documentary, which we, I would love to throw this in the show notes too, her documentary 13th came out on Netflix and I saw that documentary. And while I've been teaching about um, marginalization and issues of justice and identity in my 11th grade English class, I, I just came to a conclusion that I wanted to, I wanted to lean into a, a new, a new understanding I had of the suffering of black and brown people kind of pretty broadly in America as a result of mass incarceration. So uh, the, the documentary lays out the case for how, African-Americans in particular moved from a, a forced labor class to a least labor class to a, a, a population of people who are disproportionately held in prisons and, and in prisons and in jails and particularly for those people who have longer 
um, forced stays as you would. They are often used for labor for companies that farm potatoes. At one point, Victoria's Secret was using um, prison labor. And so what ended up happening is, or what ends up happening, this is a perpetual cycle of people, 95% of people who leave prison, they come back to us, right? They come back to our communities. And then because they have a criminal conviction on their record, Many of them are, they struggle to find jobs. So there's like a struggle to find a job because there's a skill deficiency, struggle to find jobs because there's all of this compacted trauma from oftentimes growing up impoverished and without access to sufficient self-care, you know, in terms of food and, and therapy and financial literacy. And then all of that is compounded by the fact that because of their convictions, a lot of employers um, discriminate, you know, like there's a, there's a lot of embedded, deeply embedded bias against people who have criminal convictions. And I just didn't have that. And that's because of the house I grew up on in Milwaukee on Grant Boulevard. So the, the name of the company is, is very much so tied to my own, my own life, my own, my own, my own journey of trying to navigate um, poverty in places and, and abandonment in other times and, and figuring out what survival would look like for me. And I was never arrested but I have had interactions with the police and um, I know what it's like, you know, like I, I made it out of Milwaukee, the North side of Milwaukee by these other mystical forces that were, I think really were, were protecting me and cheering me on. But I know a lot of people who, for whatever reason, that just, that wasn't, that wasn't their journey. And I know that for some of them, it meant that they ended up in these cycles of criminality and cycles of poverty. And, and that was one of those, those, those places where I saw suffering that I wanted to show up in. So Grand Boulevard is my effort at showing up for the poor, disproportionately people who are black and Latino. Um, and in a way that is that shows my own deep affinity and regard for the state of the planet, which which I know from, you know, just like where my own compass has led me, that the planet is in a, a deep state of decline and that ultimately Earth will be okay, but our ability to inhabit it will be declining as well. So for me, it was like, how do we, how do I use these awarenesses that I have of fashion and of design, of suffering and poverty, of, of the state of the planet to build something that offered of just a better way? You know, like I didn't know that the clothes that we designed, I, I mean, I, I figured that the clothes that we would design would be, would be beautiful and fresh. And, you know, with anything that is art related for anyone who's listening, who's an artist, I think whenever you're producing something from a place of, of original art, you never know how people are going to receive it, if how it will resonate. And so for me, that, that that's always been a, a moment of like, or a space of that's created some real vulnerability for me is producing things, not knowing how people would receive them. But ultimately it was just like, we need another way to do things. And so if I can see that there needs to be another way, then I'm going to, I'm going to shoot my shot. And I'm going to see if I can build it. Hmm. What an inspiring journey that you've had. And really just by your example, so empowering to others to really look at, okay, what am I passionate about? What have I experienced? What is it, What have I lived through that I can offer as my own unique medicine to help heal and serve the world of level consciousness even? And just those, um, those talents and interests and passions of that intersection of art. And I didn't know that your inspiration was from that trip. Uh, to Scandinavia. And that's to make so much sense to me now reflecting on the real beauty and um, very unique aesthetic of your clothes, which 
as I know you and I have talked about personally, I'm not, I'm not a huge like fashion person, but your clothes make me salivate um, the aesthetic. And that's so interesting to hear. And then the way that you've infused it with your own personal journey um, and activism is, is really so inspiring. And I really hope it, it lights the flame in our listeners to think about as mystics do, what is their lived experience that they've healed from, that they've tapped into, that they felt the universe also support them through, and how then they can offer it to the world. So incredible. I'd love to read an excerpt from your website, which I found so profound. In a word, Grant Boulevard is a response to slavery, to lease labor, to Jim Crow, to persistent economic injustice and marginalization. We need to completely reimagine our response to poverty and the criminalization of it. And we also have to radically change how we create pathways to self-sufficient living for black and brown people who've been incarcerated. Our work to use fashion to create employment opportunities and points of exposure to the skills we all need to find long-term peace isn't about supporting the other, quote unquote, them that have been incarcerated, mind you, too often due to poverty and trauma and untreated emotional or mental health struggles. It's also about us, all of us, and it's about designing radically inclusive pathways that pursue the long-term plan of progressing our collective good. And let's not ever forget the good of our planet. Grant Boulevard is about intersectional design Grant Boulevard is about the only way forward, and forward is the motion. So, so powerful. And really, when I read that, I felt it was such an entry point into so much important conscious conversation and a real re-education, because I think particularly as white people who consider themselves quote-unquote spiritual and quote-unquote conscious, they often think that they are against racism and you know that's where they are. And the last several weeks, and I wanna anchor our listeners in time-space reality because many people will be listening to this ostensibly in years to come, but right now we're post George Floyd's recent tragic death. And it has shown us as white individuals, as conscious individuals that we're, we really have to do more. We have to show up with this climate of racism. And there are a lot of growing protests right now to dismantle. Um, and we, we really have to not only speak out against all of this, but really deepen our understanding and literally re-educate ourselves about this. And so we can use our white privilege, which is intrinsically connected to power, to help change our world and our society. And so you, t you really hit on two points here. Um, and one is that in order to become more conscious and educated, we need to understand the context and the history of racism. So you alluded to the Jim Crow laws. And I just wanted to please refresh our listeners as to what these laws were, because they only ended 55 years ago. And so I'd love to, to hear your thoughts on those and, and go from there. Sure, sure, sure. Um, you know, I think, and just in, in kind of framing where we are, 
you know, we, a lot of us, I think, I, I think, I imagine a number of us have seen the pictures of the little kids who went to, to integrate schools in the South. And one of those little girls is Ruby Bridges. And Ruby Bridges is 65 this, this year. She's, she's alive and she's 65. She's, she's the same age as my parents. And so I think when we think about this story, we think of this black and white photography. We, and, we, and I think that because of the way that our public education has framed conversations of the civil rights movement, it feels so far away. But in reality, it's not far at all. And when we talk about the, the time with, under which slavery was completely legal under the law, just slavery, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get to Jim Crow as a, as a response to the end of slavery, but slavery lasted for almost 400 years. We're talking you know, a, over a dozen generations of, of, of people, of families who were in completely locked out of any ability to own anything, ability to learn to read even. And so when we talk about how, how much things have shifted in a way, on, on the surface, it seems like we've come so far. And in a lot of ways we have. So I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna completely reduce the progress that's been made. But I think if we only focus on the signs of what might be a surface level manifestation of progress, we forget that underneath all of those, those kind of easy to see manifestations, there's this deep, long history, deeply embedded practices that we are, we're also seeing at the same time. And I'll give you a case in point, which is, you know, we talked about, you mentioned to everyone that I'm a councilwoman in a suburb of Philadelphia. And it's a, and for me, it's been a really a gentle place to live. It's been a good place to live, although I am one of few families of color. And one thing that I am, that I can see, right, that sits below the surface, even though I'm on council and I was elected as a councilwoman, is that it's still not a fully integrated community. And that's not unique to the place that we live in. That's America. Our neighborhoods, by and large, unless you live in large urban centers, they're not integrated. Our schools aren't integrated. Our, our friendships are integrated. People who come in and out of our homes oftentimes don't, they only look like us, you know, like that's unless we, we really are intentional about closing up that space. And there's something to be said about living intentionally and I, that I'd really like to come back to you later on if we have time. Um, but in thinking about the story of Jim Crow as an expansion of this longer history of slavery, what we saw in this country was slaves are free. They're given nothing. They're given no, no, no way of, of kind of repairing the damage that was done, the money that was stolen, the years of life and the physical abuse. They're given no nothing to start with. They're sent out into the world, you know, like, good luck, go find, you know, find someplace else to live. And what ends up happening immediately is there's a real effort to try to figure out how to recapture all of that, that labor that had made so many people either grossly wealthy like, you know, we talk about those same generations of loss. We see generations of gain or people who were really looking forward to breaking into the middle class by still exploiting oppression. And that's what ends up happening after the, the moment in American history that's called Reconstruction is the KKK emerges as a terrorist organization, essentially really focused on figuring out how to use the threat of violence or actual violence to suppress the vote, to keep schools segregated and to keep blacks economically completely marginalized in terms of their participation, ability to participate in the economy. And so that's what sits below the surface of everything we're seeing now that I think our, and I, this is, I know this to be true because I've been a teacher for 18 years. It's one of those, those, those truths that is, that maybe is, is so counter to the narrative of America, the free and home of the brave that we just don't even acknowledge it. We just completely 
we literally whitewash that all of that that gross cruelty all of that horror from our notion of who we are and that's why this moment i think is so is has been such an illuminating one is because as we see more and more of this this footage of people being murdered and we're all traumatized and for black people in particular re-traumatized by this brutality it's it's calling to our attention that the things that we've decided are 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 good and well are actually bad and broken and and that to me while there are definitely waves where it feels so heavy and it makes me feel so sad and it makes me feel so so discouraged. There are other moments where I see these new voices emerging of saying what you framed your question and comment with, which is that it's not enough to say that we are, that we're not racist. It's not enough to say that, you know, I want people to be treated fairly in principle. If we're going to move beyond where we are now and not return to it again, it's going to take some major redesigning of of how we do a lot of things, how we tax, mm-hmm. what we, how we distribute those that revenue. Those are major. Those are major breakaway points that I that I'm hoping this moment has begin to prepare us to. And when I say us, I really I mean it's all of us, but particularly white Americans because white Americans still make up so much of the, the majority. Um, that white Americans are going to have to 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 decide differently on. Mm, so good. I mean, there's so many things that you said that were completely mind expanding, but it's true what you said. And I hadn't thought about that, even with the photographs being in black and white and that whole idea, you know, 55 years ago, you know, only were those Jim Crow laws changed. And as you said, we're one generation away from, you know, having what was it about a hundred years essentially of complete segregation in our country. So like you said about Ruby Bridges, you know, we have this whole generation of people and then older than them, right. Who lived through having, you know, Jim Crow laws and for our white listeners and other listeners who, you know, aren't clear what these are. I mean, we're talking about, you know, this quote unquote separate, but equal and enforcing legally that transportation, public schools, restrooms, restaurants, drinking fountains, for crying out loud, right, were separate. And that was not long ago. And so as you so spaciously put, yeah, you know, we've made some quote unquote progress and movement in this way. But like you said, there's a lot of work that needs to be done that, you know, we've whitewashed that has not been done. And that's become very, very clear. I mean, you know, you think about slavery and as you said over 400 years total with slavery and then segregation you know if you had a company for 400 years and you're running a company a certain way and you've got a certain culture and then you went to dismantle um, the culture in the company and shift it 180 degrees right how much time how much energy and it might be that you literally start a new company because it's so different and so I think about it in relationship even to, to mysticism and the, the conscious spiritual path and self-work, you know, the law changes. So civil rights acts come along. And just to contextualize that for our listeners, you're talking essentially from 1954 up through 1968 and slowly things like voting rights and, you know, segregation essentially starts to dissolve legally. But then people of color and 
white people, what are the stories that we've told our kids and one another for 400 years? Their system has been in place. So the law might change quickly. And hopefully, you know, some people rise to a shift of consciousness. But really, the stories we tell ourselves and how we work with our minds is real. And this is what we do as conscious spiritual individuals and trying to become, you know, deeper in our psychological maturation. But as a society, right, the law changes, but what are what are the stories that we're telling ourselves? You know, if you're an African-American and you've been told your whole life and for many, many generations that your body was not a value, that your life was not a value, right? In the imprint of the psyche, you know, that shift takes time. That shift takes, you know, so much healing and support from society that just has not been present. You know, and similarly, I think about it like the stories we tell ourselves of racism. Like if you're in a family and in a whole culture who are racist, and what are those stories? Well, the law changes, but we know how hard it is to, to change stories, you know, about things we want, like, you know, whether it's money or whether it's health, things that we want for ourselves, you know, let alone others. So yeah, you put it so adeptly, like there's so many structures and there's so many things that still need to be done, I think because of the, the shortness of time and the paramount task we have in front of us. And you, you're doing that with your life, which is so incredible in your work. So I thank you for that. You are, you are absolutely welcome. I, it's an honor for me to have had the guidance of so many people who had such a really, for me, such a really, a really clear sense of, of the mystic and of, and of, and of the idea that we all have these guys that we can tap into to help us, to help us know the way and to affirm that, that the, the long and hard work. And that's what we're talking about sustainability and we're talking about justice and we're talking about equality and equity that's long, hard work. And we all have these, these forces that I really think are, are here to support us in figuring out how we're going to do that work and how we're going to figure out what our own individual sacrifices will be. And, and that's not to say that I haven't made them. You know, when we think about anyone who we've ever respected for what they've contributed to significant social progress, they've made a lot of major sacrifices. Gandhi lost his relationship with his children. MLK was murdered. Malcolm X was murdered. Um, Angela Davis was, you know, had to spend her, a lot of her life in, in essentially in hiding and in, in being silenced. And, and I think that that's the other thing that all of us, as we think about, you know, what the what these mystical forces are telling us, all of them are also demanding that we make sacrifices for the good of things that don't immediately serve us on an individual level. Um, and I think that if we can tap into that, if we can tap into our, if we can surrender to the idea that the, the best work we can do is in figuring out how to make sacrifices, then we have a shot at, at slowing down climate change. We have a shot at slowing down the still ongoing efforts by people who are in power to suppress the vote, to keep people from being able to be to be, receive a fair wage for their work. Um, if we can do that, then we can do that, that other work. And, and while I said it before, and, I, and it's worth saying again, sometimes I feel really discouraged I remain hopeful that I am not alone in the, in the thinking that, that, that those sacrifices for me on a personal level are, are, are in the good of the collective. Hmm. Hmm. Very, very eloquent and important concepts. 
And I love the word you emphasized, which was sacrifice, right? Because the etymological root of sacrifice comes from sacred and the sacredity of really offering ourselves for the good of the collective, for the good of the whole, you know, getting out of this over individualistic egocentric mindset and, and focusing more on the macro perspective on that, that quote I read a little earlier, I'll just reread one line that's so profound for our listeners because it speaks to this part of the conversation that we're having right now. You said our work to use fashion to create employment opportunities and points of exposure to the skills we all need to find long-term peace. It isn't about supporting the other them that have been incarcerated. Mind you too often the poverty and trauma and due to untreated emotional or mental health struggles. It's, it's about us, all of us. And this whole idea of the collective is such a key concept in so many mystical and spiritual traditions and has long been discussed and, you know, at times can be a cause of great misalignment and at times um, can be very revelatory, I think. Particularly in, in yoga, a lot of the listeners are in the yoga world and the tantric and Kashmir Shaivite traditions of yoga specifically. And th this practice that I want to mention here, and there are sets of practices, and holding the reality of this experience of oneness, our oneness with everything, our oneness of our own common denominational humanity, our interconnectedness, and you said that in your own words so beautifully, in yoga and spiritual realms, there's a term that's been so popularized called maya. Maya is this concept like gravity. It's unseen, but it really has an impact. It really is this, this invisible force that's said to live in each individual that creates like a veil from our ability to see and feel this oneness. And so in many spiritual traditions and mindfulness practices, those practices lead us back to feeling more connected, to feeling more of the remembrance of oneness. And once in a while, it's said that the Maya acts so um, extremely that it's called Maima Mala. It's, it's a way that Maya operates and functions and it starts to breed hatred and breed violence. So it's the quality of Maya that creates the illusion of separateness. And then it gets so extreme that it creates hatred and the sense of the other. So we use practices to help experience our own oneness. And so it's a complicated thing in the spiritual world. And I'd love to hear you talk about this idea of the other in your work and your experience. And also you're such a mystic and you're so connected clearly in this realm because there are practices in the yoga and spiritual communities, right? That are oneness, but then sometimes well, people will use this idea of oneness as bypassing. So we can get there. <laughs> we can go there a little bit later. Let's start from the idea of the other and, and what that means to you and how this plays into all of um, what's happening in our society, this collective moment in time, and then also what this means for you in the way of, um, your own spiritual life and what you see in the mystical realms. 
Wow, so much there, so much there. Uh, thank you actually for going back and talking about the etymology of the word of sacred and what and what the roots are of, of things being sacred, what that comes from. Um, I, I don't think that that can be said enough. Um, so when thinking about this this notion of the other, it's a fascinating concept because the other is a con- actually a construction of the self. So when we when I think when we think about how we frame the idea of the other, it says a lot about us and those of us who have the power to deem who is included and who is not included. And James Baldwin talks about this at some great length. He has a, and we'll add this on the, the set of resources too, another documentary, not on Netflix, this one's on Amazon Prime currently, called I Am Not Your Negro. And, and the idea and that he, he comes back to over and over again in his brilliant scholarship is that the idea of the of, of people who are black in particular, and, and there's so many other groups that have been marginalized in this in the story of this country, but I really want to focus on the experience of black people in particular because there's so much there. And I don't and I don't I don't want that to even be diluted by this, this these conversations of all of these others, all this other suffering. We will get to that and we need to get to that. But this moment is really about us rectify us kind of coming clear about the experience of of otherness as as it happens for black people and and what james baldwin does is he says that you know he says that what is a nigger he says i am not a nigger i didn't create the word word nigger he says that the word nigger is the creation of someone else in their effort to essentially to other me and he says that that monstrosity that that word captures is not of my making and it is not me it is of you so as we think about how we frame people who have been othered, I really think it's important that going back to this idea of the circular loop of going inward, when we talk about how we frame people who are not like us, the work to be done is to decipher where did these narratives about who these others were come from and what does our marriage to protecting those notions in our own psyches say about us? That is the work. That is the inward work of, of figuring out this, this, this kind of deeper conversation about who created the other, who does the othering serve, and who does the othering harm. Um, for me, and thinking about the work of Grant Boulevard as a company, it's, it's how do we take these, these, this, these sets of people who have been othered because of their, what has been deemed criminal, right? Which is also quite, quite honestly, there are some, there's a lot of gray about what will be deemed criminal, right? For a long time in this country, it was deemed, it was criminal to learn how to read. It was criminal to teach a black person how to read. It was criminal to speak out against the government in, in moments in history. It's been, it's been criminal to be in a same-sex relationship or an, or an interracial relationship. So the, the idea of criminality as being something that is to a social construct really, really, it continues to fascinate me. And, it, and for me, for Grant Boulevard, it's how do we figure out how to collapse hierarchy and bring people together who have been othered for a whole set of reasons and circumstances and conditioning that are not mine, that were not mine. And, and because I have known and loved and been loved by so many people who have, who have been deemed criminal, because I have admired deeply so many people who have been deemed criminal, my relationship with them as a group to be othered, it is it's, it's distorted. It doesn't it doesn't jive with what I think mainstream media, maybe public education, would have most of us believe to be true about those groups. And for me, it's how do we 
bring people together in this, this new culture, this new community, where those kinds of hierarchies about who is other are, are aired out. It's not that they don't exist, it's that they're aired out, that they're, that they're, they're consciously kind of tackled in an effort to say that those things don't matter, that you have a past and I have a past. And if you want to be re, if you want to reimagine yourself, then we are a community of people who are super excited about reimagination of all things. We reimagine ourselves, we reimagine textiles, um, and we live for that idea of the remixing of the old and the new into something that is yet more beautiful. And, and I think that that is what, what I think is resonating with a lot of people outside of our team about Grand Boulevard and what we do. It's like we play with fabrics that already exist, menswear in particular, and we reimagine them. And then we really are doing everything we can and can't wait till COVID's over so we can do it really in the way that I, that I, that I envision doing it to figure out how to, how to find this, these, these deeply talented people and then to welcome them into this new, this new ecosystem. Hmm. Such a juicy and deeply reflective elucidation on this concept of the other. And then I love your whole idea of reimagining and the whole sense of what we needed to do in our society, what we need to do in so many areas of this of this time where dissolution dismantling has to happen right renovation has to happen and yet we can take take some things and then thread them into new creations that are supporting this reimagining of a new world on so many fronts um i love the bell hooks quote i don't know if you know this one she says when we choose to love we choose to move against fear against alienation and separation. The choice to love is a choice to connect, to find ourselves in the other. And it came to my mind when you talked about your whole experience with who is criminal and how you've been loved and you know, in relationship with various people um, that have been deemed and, and marked criminal. And that's such an incredible radical statement that I can't wait to unpack for myself. So thank you. And I invite all the listeners to really be courageous and do this work of reflection, of looking deep within yourself. And this is the way then we make connection with others, right? When we say, okay, what's mine? Okay. And then I can own that. And then once we can own our particular, you know, whether it's racist beliefs, whether it's, you know, whatever misalignments that there are that don't reflect our values, we can then have greater um, opportunity to really connect because they're not in the way of that connection and that choice to love. Um, because, you know, there are other, like I mentioned that concept in yoga, Maya, the spiritual traditions hold. Yes, there's other. And another way that that Maya um, operates, it's like a magical mystery mirror and it creates diversity and is something to be celebrated. And because we're different and unique, we have our own special gifts that only we can offer this world. And that's part of our destiny to be here, to get in the ring and up-level humanity with that unique medicine. Um, the yogic adage says, you are not me, you are something like me. You are me all at once. And don't you think that's really so much of spiritual and psychological maturation? What do you think of that? I totally, completely agree. I mean, I mean, I think that 
And I think this is where we arrive at this, this larger kind of connection with the universe and all the forces of the universe. This is actually the recognition that we are not these separate energies, that we are one energy. And that's where the mystical kind of, for me, that's, that's, that's the way in which I think for me, even the, the exponential growth of my own, what someone else, and, and it has been deemed this a radical sense of compassion. To me, it's not, it's not radical. To me, it's an understanding that really, and this goes back to all, so many of the traditions, Eastern and Western, that, you know, you want for, for others what you want for yourself. You want for your neighbor what you want for yourself. And I think that really the reason why we haven't seen the, the progress that, that we all imagine being, being, you know, possible is that we haven't lived up to the, to those, those traditions and what they've called us to do just in that one single direction that we've instead settled into these capitalist notions of materialism and selfishness of if I can do it, you can do it, which, which separates us from the reality, the real reality that my, our suffering, our individual suffering as our individual success is tied most and really more ways than we can know most closely with the suffering and success of other people. So really it's about, for me, as I, as I see it, it's like, how do we change the metric around what we reward and what we criminalize with a real understanding that we're all connected? You know, just circling back to this idea of criminality in particular, you know, the idea that we can love people who've done things that have been deemed criminal is actually something we're already doing. Because while we know that there are these people who have been found guilty, they've been convicted, they've been charged, that whole legal process. We also all know people who have, one, either broken laws that are currently on the books, right? They've, they've written a bad check, or they have lied, cheated on their taxes, or they've, they've jaywalked, or they've, you know, they've done these other things that we have literally, quote unquote, called white collar crimes, right? This idea that, oh, they're, they're less crimes because they're crimes disproportionately committed essentially by white men, right? They, who wears white collars? Those are white men crimes. And that, that makes them somehow, we've been conditioned to not think about them as being, as being damaging, which is partly why we had this huge financial crash in 2008 is because of all of this unchecked white collar crime. But at the same time, when I think about how I define criminality, for me, it's companies who who exploit their workers by making them work these crazy long hours and not giving them health benefits and paying them almost nothing and then dumping all this fertilizer and these chemicals in their backyards that gets into their water table and pollutes their air. For me, that's my that's another part of my metric for what is criminal. But no one but that's not what society has deemed criminal for me. Criminal is a person who sets up a large corporation and refuses for the length of the, corp the corporation to pay taxes and thereby acquires more personal wealth than anyone on the planet. To me, that fits my definition of criminal. So I, I really think that this moment, while it's giving us a, some really great breathing room to think about equity and justice and environmentalism, I really hope it gives us another lens for thinking about criminality and damage and the need for repair. Hmm. So, so great. And really this whole idea of taking back each one of our power by what you said, defining our own metric of criminality, because all of these things come down to our own moral compass, right? And really as individuals being conscious, um, you know, walking this path of consumerism, living in this time of capitalism, 
Like if we're really being awake people, then it's really thinking about all these things in every sector of our life. And I love how you what you spoke of with the white collar crimes and, you know, your vision of, you know, criminality within, um, you know, different entrepreneurships. And and I agree with you on all fronts. And so much of the time, I think that in our busy modern culture, we're running such a rat race and we're all going, right? And isn't that part of this whole system that's not working? 180 miles an hour and society is set up such that we're not even taking these pauses, these mindful moments to think about like where our goods are coming from that we're consuming, which is the way we vote and the way that we really reflect our morals. Um, in a capitalistic society. And it's hard. You know, all of that is hard because we've also been conditioned to think that, well, this is the cost of a good. And so because this is the standard cost of a good, then I don't want to pay more than that. But what we're doing by making that choice is we're passing on that cost to people who can afford even less than we can, you know, and, and that's that's a part of the awakening too is in truth, you know, if we're going to really show up for the larger universal force, it's going to mean that we we probably we we spend less, right? We think about we think about in terms of our consumption, we buy less. We focus more on making sure that we know who's creating the things that we're consuming, and and when we when we think that way, we vote with our dollars, just like you said, we vote with our dollars for the kinds of changes that we want to see. And I think that that's happening. And I and I know that the proof for me of that is is just the you know. Grand Boulevard is a baby company. It's, I was telling you, I think at some point that it's a toddler company. And, and I think that the reason why we've survived to this point as a small, you know, in the beginning, self-funded, friend-funded company is that the tide is turning. And I think as long as we continue to own our power and to, to act on our power as consumers, then, then whatever change happens or doesn't happen, it's all on us. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's just brava, like really, really, really such impressive. And as you say, forward thinking, you know, this is a, this is considered right now in many, you know, astrologically and many like spiritual kind of divination and intellectual fronts, like a real, you know, the dawning of the age of Aquarius, quote unquote, to, to, to quote the, the well-known cheesy song. <laughs> That, you know, we are birthing a new paradigm and we're in it. And I love what you said as real signposts and um, ways to do it, right? With our dollars, with our consciousness um, and really sifting and sorting and finding small businesses like yours that are doing the work that your consciousness and your heart reflects. You know, if we want to be a part of the activism doing it like we both alluded to with our dollars is the way to do it. And that takes time, right? That takes, I mean, it takes time to research and um, be mindful, but I really encourage our listeners who feel moved to take that time to do the research of who's making your things that you're buying, what companies are supporting, you know, which causes in the world <laughs> that of uh, where your dollars are going. Um, I want to circle back a little bit, though. You know, it's it's a topic that has been spoken of a lot lately to the point where I feel like it's almost watered down. And I'd love the listeners to hear from such an elevated um, and spiritual human being that is you, um, your take on 
white privilege. You know, it's, oh, white privilege. And, and, and so many, I've had a lot of conversations recently, and I feel like a lot of white individuals say, yeah, yeah, I know what white privilege is now. It's a buzzword. Okay, we, we know a lot of people are saying. Um, what I've experienced in doing my own inner work in this arena as of lately is how revisiting and reviewing the history, revisiting and reviewing is helping peeling layers for myself, who never I would think, oh, like I'm racist at all. But the more I look and think about it all, um, there are just so many layers to it. And so that revisiting, re-educating, rethinking um, is just so important. So I'd love to hear from you, Goddess, um, your thoughts on, on, on white privilege, please. Oh, wow. So many, so many thoughts on that. Um, because what I, what I, I think there's so many thoughts for me because, oh, where to start? I think part of it is, is that people, white, white folk, have not had to really, you know, because of the way our lives are so segregated, there, there haven't been a, a real reckoning of how much suffering Black people have had to endure. There really isn't a sense of, of, of a temperature check on all the pain and the poverty and the hunger and the homelessness, all the depression. There's no, there's no connection with it in a meaningful way. Instead, it just gets pushed away over there. And, and I think for a lot of white folk, it's like you drive past it when you're when you are you know you're moving from your suburb into the inner city, or if you are um, you know you might see manifestation on it when someone walks into a room and they just just their their sheer blackness is a reminder that wow the world is not entirely white. But the privilege piece comes in from being protected from all of that pain and suffering and hopelessness and depression um, and hunger and and hopelessness and hopelessness. And I think what what America is seeing in this moment where there's so much civil unrest is a response to just how much white folk have been protected from all of that anguish. And, and I think that the fact that so many white, so many white Americans are seeing that the anguish on a TV screen or reading about it in a book, even that in of itself speaks volumes to the, the gulf that is the disconnect and the livid experiences. You know, like as a as a black woman, I, I don't I don't need a documentary to show me the pain. It may tell me some details about the story, things I didn't learn in school, which are helpful in framing where we are and where we've been. But I know the poverty and I and I know I know the despair. And I think that that's what the privilege is ultimately in part about. There's an emotional privilege of not knowing the pain points. There's an economic privilege of not having to live in a neighborhood where because no one owns anything, there's less of an investment in terms of which, where trash gets thrown because you, you, you recognize that no one owns anything, that you don't own anything, that you're never going to be able to likely own anything. And, and I think that the privilege is, is feeling like this is my country and this is my neighborhood and this is my, you know, that all of this my this my thing is is oftentimes tied to ownership, and and what we're seeing in this moment is this this different experience with not just necessarily value set. I mean, all people want to feel free. All people want to have opportunities and and to be able to move freely and to bird watch and to to uh, to shop without being harassed. To to fall asleep in a drive through. To to you know to stand on a corner. But I think that there's this other thing that all people want, want, which is a sense of ownership 
and privilege and white privilege, what it sets up is, is that you don't even have to think about the ways in which you've been kept out, which is what black people have to think about all the time. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering, could you offer a couple um, gems from your perspective, personally, that as a white person, one could articulate and would acknowledge what African-American individuals go through and yet aren't speaking down or aren't obnoxious, frankly. Because I think when I speak to some of my white friends and colleagues, there is, you know, and as you said so well, there's a, there's a chasm between our experience and even exposure. And I think you said it so well about now that it's, there's this really important uprising, we're seeing this anguish and psychological distress. And, and it's, and it's so important for us to all look at it and see all of this happening. Um, but yeah, do you have any gems in the way of a couple phrases or maybe things absolutely to not say that people have said to you, because that chasm then at times, I think as a white person, it's like, oh, I'd like to say something or I'd like to reach out, but you don't want to do it in a way that's offensive. And so then one doesn't because bridging this connection and support isn't part of it. Like, hey, I, I, I see what's going on. I feel and see that um, you're living in a different paradigm. And just that acknowledgement of that. That that in and of itself, that's that is a I love how you said that this idea of I see that you're living in a different paradigm. And I think I, I really wish that that the first thing that has to be done, which I know that you've been you've been thinking about how you're gonna do this in your own experience, is is going inward and really just reflecting on to what extent is this are are black Americans living in a different paradigm? And once you get to a dozen reasons, and, and dozen is a short list, I mean I could probably throw out maybe 60. You can with a dozen reasons why you can see that the paradigm is different. That in and of itself will frame your ability to think about, um, you know, about your neighbors, to think about the people who you work with, to hold more space for seeing that their paradigm is not your paradigm. And that's not inherently of your making and it's not of theirs. So then it becomes the now what next. And I think that, you know, one, one little thing I, I hope that this moment produces is we have got to be much more intentional about who we bring into our homes because our children are watching us. And so what we say to our kids is one thing, but I think who we bring into our homes is another level of showing our kids where we stand when it comes to how we see other people and how we feel about other people, how, how safe or afraid we feel with other people. So I think that that's another thing, what, what we're modeling and not just for our children, for those of us who are adults who live in families where there's racialized tension that may have been said in childhood or not spoken, modeling for your parents and your siblings and your cousins and your aunts who you are intentional about bringing into your world and building meaningful bonds with, right? And that's not to say that every brown or black person you're going you're gonna to click with, but where you feel there's some opening for a meaningful, intimate connection, right? And intimate is not romantic. Intimate is like honesty and vulnerability and authenticity. We need to really make an effort to foster those relationships because that's how we're going to figure out how to show up where we live and where we work, how to be a better ally where we live and where we work is by listening. It's by developing these meaningful bonds. And then beyond mm. that, 
the larger, longer work, right? And this is where it becomes, you know, MLK, Rosa Parks, um, I, you know, I, I even thinking about some other white allies, they didn't decide in a moment that they were going to care about justice for a week. They were people who once they, they arrived in this awareness of the paradigm, they arrived in this awareness of the interconnectedness of all of us, it became their life. It was, this is, I mean, this is how I live. I think about people all the time. I think about the suffering all the time. I'm, I'm figuring out how I can shop different and I'm figuring out how I can make better use of my resources by being more purposefully, intentionally thoughtful with them all the time. So we have to settle into a new relationship with how we live in relation to Black people. And I, and I think that the third thing I want to give is the gym. And I think this is furthest away from our conditioning about justice is, is that if we really want our kids and our grandchildren or any little person in our tribe, even if they're not our biological or adopted children, to live in a more gentle world, white Americans are going to have to think about the allocation of resources because what has happened in this longer 400 year history of this country is that wealth has been colonized and it's been, it's been hoarded grossly hoarded. And the only way we're going to get to adjust, adjust and a more just, a more fair world as if there's a different thinking about the divestment of our, of our resources, breaking up with our resources in a different way and really using them to make space for people who for hundreds of years were legally prohibited from owning anything, including themselves. Hmm. You said so many really important things that I, I just want to recap a little bit for our viewers because it's just so much wisdom and also things that people can digest and hopefully take back into their lives. Um, I really love how you talked about going within and again, sourcing your responses by taking that sacred pause is how I say it, but really feeling into the moment when one is interacting with African-American colleagues, friends as an ally and, and sourcing it from that place of one's deep intrinsic heart. And, and that's such a practice um, and taking the time to do that. A couple other things that you said about just modeling, modeling, right? Modeling it for our kids, modeling it for, like you said, family members, our parents, our siblings, whomever, for our friends, and like you said, even for our neighbors, um, you know, being that change, as Gandhi said, that you wish to see, and that that is such a form of activism, and it's one that's sustainable and will have great impact. So thank you for that. Um, the hoarding of wealth and and the distribution of wealth, a hundred percent, a thousand percent. Again, back to the reality that up until recently, there are individuals, African-Americans, individuals, and you not being able to own property. Not, this was not long ago. So, so many things that, you know, if we really look at what was that we would understand our really duty to, to share abundance for those of us who have it. And, and the ways that we can. Some people, right, it's financial abundance. Some people, it's going to look like time. There's temporal abundance, right? So we all have abundance in different ways. If you're listening to this podcast, there probably is an area where you have abundance that you can commit in some way in the next year 
towards this um, becoming more of an ally um, to our African-American co-humans here. Um, I wanted to talk about spiritual bypassing because it's, I feel like, so much a part of what I have seen um, in relationship to race in the yoga and spiritual communities. It's, you know, one of the primary reasons that I own a yoga studio. Um, so let's talk about that. I know you are someone who is a deep, you know, connected spiritual person and personally go on retreats. And so can you share maybe some things that you've seen in when you've gone to different retreats or in, you know, yoga studios or in different places, how it's made you felt, ways that we can all up-level our understanding and, um, and living in this realm? Yeah, that is a... Um... That is a really challenging question. And I definitely think that there are, there are, in all fairness, I think that one of the, one of the, for sure, what the yoga community needs to spend more time on, the, the meditation retreat culture community needs to spend more time on, is elevating the voices of people of color, Black people in particular, who have been in those spaces both as a voyeur and a participant, as an observer, um, but also as a leader. And I think that every, for every, every yoga community, you know, like in a very localized way, you know, whether it's like your own studio or the studio that you literally own or the studio that you, that you support, there has to be some kind of conversation about how do we become more, more thoughtful about how we're creating community and making sure that people feel safe. And I think the thing that's been hard for so long is that there's a discomfort about acknowledging about acknowledging that there are these other voices and figuring out how to let those voices kind of emerge and, and let them really take up space. But there, that's where the work needs to be done is in, is in elevating those voices and, and, and actually relinquishing some control to, to what those voices say about how we create these, these healthier spaces. Because really, when spaces are warm and receptive of Black folk, they're warm and reflective, excuse me, they're warm and accepting of other folk too, of, of all kinds of other folk. So I do think if we, we can start with that conversation of how do we how do we get a more accurate temperature check on what people are experiencing by by just talking in, checking in with the people in your community who are the black folk in your community who come to into your your sacred spaces, your yoga spaces, your retreat centers. What are they feeling? What are they what are they thinking about that? Um, and because I do think mm. the answer to that is very localized. I think that I don't think that there's a generalized. This is where it is everywhere. It's this is how this feels here. Because my experience in one yoga studio has been different from my experience in one meditation center. Um, and I do think, by and large, one of the beauties for me, anyways, is that for the most part, while these spaces are predominantly white, and I think part of that is because they the, the price point. I think that there's oftentimes there may be some barriers. Um, yoga is about self-care, ultimately, soul care. And for people who are figuring out how to pay bills or how to you know, afford groceries, I think sometimes those paid self-care opportunities, they are luxuries. Unfortunately, they become luxuries. So that's another thing to think about is how are we making this financially accessible, right? So those are the other, those are the, the, the systemic questions that I think have to be addressed. Do we have a scale? You know, is there a sliding scale? Have we worked that in in any way? Do we give scholarships for yoga trainings? Um, just to accommodate for people who are who are still figuring out from a lack of privilege how to navigate what to do with 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 scarce resources. 
Yeah, yeah, all great points. And I think too, with um, someone who is a consumer at these studios and a participant at these retreats, you know, these spiritual bypassing, quote unquote, little phrases that I just actually want to say a couple because I hear them often so that our our listeners are really clear like what spiritual bypassing is I mean spiritual bypassing just to, to articulate is really when we use our spiritual practice and selective principles to overlook relevant issues avoiding your feelings or discounting someone else's lived experience discounting someone else's lived experience because of your uncomfortability or ignorance, <laughs> to put it bluntly, and wanting to be in your spiritual la-la land. So things like phrases that I've heard often are about like, oh, it's all love and light. It's all good. We are all one. So that oneness, again, it's, it's, that's not a bad concept, but are you applying it skillfully? And how are you applying it? This becomes, right, the masterful yogi and spiritual conscious person living life. Um, Avoiding feelings like anger or grief because you think you need to be positive all the time. Another one, I don't know if you've encountered this, but people claiming they don't see race or color. I see someone's soul. So those are ones that I have heard a lot that make my skin crawl. Um, and so I think we really need to be conscious when we're showing up in these communities um, of what we say around other practitioners, um, particularly right now. And these issues are, are really rightfully on the surface of life and you, as they should be. And I think that sometimes those are those are expressions of these deep, deeply held and sometimes um, un, unacknowledged uh, feelings of discomfort around race. And I think that as an antidote for that, one of the things that 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 white folks can do right now, which has been really helpful for me, is just you know for me. It's, it's just, it's, it's making eye contact. It's amazing how many people avoid making eye contact when I'm on a run or in the grocery store. And there are, when, whenever someone makes eye contact with me and they say hello, that is such a clear, that is actually a clearly distinguishable um, choice with, in comparison to what other people do, which, which, which speaks volumes, is that when they avoid eye contact and they don't say hello, they don't, they're not the first to offer a greeting. I, I draw, have a default conclusion that they're uncomfortable. So, mm. and I, and I think that that's what, that's typically, that's a general a way in which we process discomfort is in our bodies, right? We avoid things that, that are, that are, that are, that show where we feel uncomfortable, which could be eye contact. So the, one of those, one of those kind things we can do right now, I think to send out, you know, the real love to black people in this moment is to, and to Asian Americans who are experiencing their own kind of, of discrimination, is make eye contact. Be direct in your eye contact. Smile. And I know we're wearing masks now, so that's not where that's going to live necessarily from from you know within six feet. Put it wave. Issue a sense of I see you. I am here with you. I I stand with you. I am not afraid to say that I stand with you. So that's just some concrete. I think helpful advice for this moment. That is brilliant advice because we that's part of our abundance, right? The abundance of our attention. And as modern mystics and conscious people walking this path of one's own self-development, right? We have it's our attention. We know, I mean I always say attention really in some sense is our greatest currency. 
And it's such a helpful thing that it could seem like small, something that we could even forget, but make extra attention to make that a practice and that can make a difference. Thank you for that. I also just want to touch on um, a little bit ago, you had mentioned um, the idea of compassion. And that was so beautiful how you put that um, when you were talking about how to be an ally. And I know the, the word compassion because I love this word so much. Um, literally, it comes from the root to be with someone's suffering or to be and feel into, to go with someone, right? And so by that eye contact, we can, that's a way of offering love, compassion, connection. You know, there's different ways to think about it depending upon your intention. But so, so helpful, Kimberly. Thank you for that. Um, the Dalai Lama said, the world will be saved by Western women. <laughs> and you're such a, such a, women activated um, human being, and then your company reflects this. So when you hear this quote by this mystical powerhouse, what do you think he means by this? I think he means that, you know, we talk about, we talk about privilege. And one of the things that, that Western democracy, I mean, despite all of its, the criticisms I have of it and how it's played out, it has gone further than a lot of other government structures, at least, to think about what the what the place of women will be. And we we all know, all of us who are women, we know, and for all of those of, of us who are feminists and not women, who do not identify as women, we know that we have so much work to do, particularly in America, to close the wage, wage gap and to to make sure that you know women can can be mothers while they're working and they can be paid to work from home as mothers, right? Like that there are lots of there's lots of work to do in that way. But I think the, 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 the spirit of what's being communicated there is that because of our, our liberation in terms of how we've been able to gain and garnish and wield our power, particularly in government, that we have the, we have the, the a tremendous opportunity to push the world further, to push our neighbors further, to push our, our local representatives, our, you know, our, our, in terms of government structures, to push the conversation further. And I think we also have in ways of everything else in terms of entrepreneurship and art to be able to really own what it means to be a woman, to experience life as women, and to use all of the things that come with that really unique compass to pull our families and to pull our neighborhoods, our cities into a wider sense of commitment to equality. And, and that is what I think he's saying is that women didn't create these problems because we haven't had the power to create these paradigms. And now that we are aware of them, we it's on us to shift them. And that's like a new kind of feminism, right? This new kind of like this new age feminism where it says, it's not that I don't see your race to your point, it's that I see all the ways that we are different. And I recognize that because of all of those points of differentiation, we have the power to solve things from an entirely different altitude. And we've been called to do that. And that's what he's doing. He's calling us to use these all of these points of intersection and overlap and differentiation to solve these really complex systems. And, and that to me is affirming. I, I love him. <laughs> I love all of that. And do you feel like currently the, the feminist movement is supporting Black women enough? And if not, how could this be improved? 
um, it's still not showing up the way it needs to. Um, I think that, I mean, and I think that the reason why it's not doing what it needs to is because it's always been very much so centered in whiteness. You know, when, when we first started thinking about when, when women in this country were first thinking about the suffrage and the right to vote, those were, there were certainly black women in, in the room trying to get some space there. Sojourner Truth, uh, Ida B. Wells, were some of the black women who rose to fame in the, in the era of the original suffrage movement. But for the most part, those were white women who weren't, were even in, they weren't interested in the rights of black women, but they were also weren't interested in the rights of poor white women. They were women of money and of means, and they allied mm -hmm. themselves with each other to protect their class above all else. Um, and so they were really protective of this kind of thing of like the sacrifice of privilege. And I think that the only way that this conversation in terms of us being women who are really figuring out how to, how to promote the good of us all is to see that the needs of us all are very different. And, and that's to say that really as, as women who are working women, black women, white women who are working women, we have got to see that we only all rise when we pay attention to who's at the bottom. And if we forget who's at the bottom, one, we limit, we build the, the box that we will house all of us in. And we do that because we need all women to be able to vote. We need all women have access to health care and birth control and, and, and control over the decisions regarding their bodies in their totality, including reproduction rights. So until we can really say, you know what, I see statistically that black women in childbirth are more likely to die and that the, the distinction is so huge and I, and I honor that, then we're all stuck. Yeah. Yeah, that's just so many um, aspects of what you said are just right on. And that's part of our work as, as white people. And I think particularly white women, particularly those who are of, you know, middle class to upper class affluence. So important. Um, I'm, I love on your website, your website's so beautiful. And of course, you're an English teacher. And so you're so loquacious and eloquent. But I, I want to um, read one more thing from it that's so inspiring. You wrote, a social impact business is one that aspires to create responses to longstanding social justice issues with a simultaneous mindfulness about environmental impact. This kind of business recognizes the potential for change. It shows a concrete commitment to rethinking traditional notions of sustainability because those efforts were typically targeted and led exclusively by those that have considerable privileges. The next generation of social impact businesses must widen the conversation to include black and brown folks. So I love just to break this down and um, glean some of your wisdom from a business perspective, because you are a rock star um, entrepreneur and, and really business woman, not just in your visionary leadership sense, which I think is now clear to the listeners, but down to the most micro level sense. And I'm wondering if you could give some advice to those entrepreneurs and business owners who are so overwhelmed because I own a small business and the overwhelm is real. The lack of days off, which most of us are none is real. <laughs> So what advice can you give to these folks to move towards more conscious entrepreneurship that has positive social impact in baby steps in the face of overwhelm? 
You know, that is, that is, that is really definitely a challenge. And I think that there are a couple of things that I think have been really helpful to me. And, and one of those is building a team who really believes in the vision for doing things in a way that aligns with your values. And you really can't do that as a business leader until you are really clear about your values and until you commit to saying, I'm not going to do things that are not in alignment with my values. And I think that that's what, that's what amazing leaders are able to do. They, they have a sense of vision. They have a clear sense of values and they, they are, and because they, they're, they're clear, they can communicate to everyone who they're bringing on to their team what they care about most. And then you actually build a team where so much of that conversation doesn't need to be had over and over again because the core values are shared. So I think that that reduces the burden in terms of trying to keep convincing people to come back again. If you are, I really feel if you are, if you're doing something that, um, that aligns with the values of the people who you're building it with, it will, you have, I think you have more of a shot of doing things actually enjoy which is the thing that makes the, the one of the hardships about running a business is that, you know, you're working all the time. And for me, the joy comes in knowing that I can defend what we do and how we do it and why we do it the way that we do. And so for me, it's always joy because it's just like, I know that what I'm doing is right where it needs to be. And so I don't have to, you know, it's not, it's not working that way. It's like this, this really weird intersection of art and joy and 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 justice and so for me that's 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 my sweet spot and and everyone will have to find in their own business leadership what their front lines will be um and making sure that they're 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 aligning themselves with things that they can defend not to themselves but to the people who are watching them their children their parents their you know their friends Mm -hmm. Um, that's great advice um great advice just having a clear set values like you said and I know even when I owned my own business like I I had that and so every decision like you said I would make and I'd encourage any entrepreneurs as you're doing is to always check back whether it's from the toilet paper up through you know those bigger decisions and like you said then it can really uh really help grow and evolve um a team that's aligned with that vision and not only aligned with it, but then they're excited and they have their joy, right? You've got your joy. They've got their, their joy and their passion for what you're all offering. And that's how a company grows. And the, these things. And, and, I, and the final point about that is the other thing I really, really hope that people break up with is their comfort with not knowing where things came from. And, and avoiding knowing where things came from because they don't want to deal with the exploitation they're participating in. So when mm-hmm. we talk about where was this, who made these things and how were they treated? That is a core underpinning of, of this capitalist economy is not, not having to think about how people are being exploited or mis, mistreated or, or straight up abused for the sake of making things affordable for us. And, and I think we as business owners, have to kind of come into an alignment with each other that we're, we're not going to be comfortable with people being exploited. I'm, I'm not going to sacrifice. And that means things are going to cost more. And that means that other things that we'd love to do, will have to slow down how quickly we're able to bring them on board. Um, but I think that the work is to, is to just disrupt these chains so we can get to a, a more kind and gentle and compassionate um, relationship with people all over the world. Mm, I love that. Disrupt these chains, right? And we're the ones if, if we're leaders and um, business owners and managers, right? That's it. It's up to us to, to break these chains if we want to create more 
conscious conversations and uh, and evolve cultures where we're including black and brown folks in conversations and decisions and also as well as just our social and environmental impact. I just want to say a couple more things and I can't believe I'm gonna have to have you back on I got so many more questions for you still <laughs> and so I just love everything you're downloading so I I really hope that we can get you back on at some point um to keep going but just to start to wind down back to this notion of the other which is really connected to we not only treat as a society too often people of color like the other but this is our attitude too about the earth as well? No, like treating the earth as the other instead of ourselves as a part of her ecosystem. Have you read the piece by Nafiz Ahmed called White Supremacy and the Earth System? Oh, no. Can you put that in, the, in our resource list? I'm going to put that in our show notes. I just discovered this recently. And he speaks really, really um, can you say that one brilliantly? Time? Can you say that one more and time? What's that called? Sure, sure. It's um, called White Supremacy and the Earth System. And, and he speaks beautifully and, and quite radically. So some of the listeners will go on there and go, you know, about some things because he really goes all out in so many ways in the way of dismantling our entire system. So that's a little, you know, know that. that but I really encourage everyone to look at that. Um, because it really got my wheel spitting in so many new directions. And, and I think all of us need to be opening our minds in this kind of way as we continue to evolve ourselves and birth a new paradigm and society. Um, and I just want to talk um, to you about, because he speaks so much about racism and our broken relationship with the planet and how they're in close tandem and dance. And so I want to just to um, ask you, how do you see a connection between these two things in a close way? Um, wow. I think, well, I think what it boils down to in a, in a really, if I can try to get this from a, in a kind of succinct way is that our economy as it, as it existed in this country in particular for the last, you know, since, since 17, you know, before 17, since 1619, um, has, has been set up in such a way that it's, it's been a winner takes all and there aren't many winners. And when I say they take all, they own everything. And, and that has been about the, the pillaging of people and the planet so that, um, so that profits can be high and costs can be low. And that's ingrained in how we get everything. It's ingrained in how we get our vegetables and how we you know, rely on the, the labor of people in Latin America to get, to get those things for us, how we rely on a, a class of of hidden immigrants who we name deem aliens, not us particular in particular, but as a country, we've been comfortable with this language of alien dumb. And it, it comes down to how we do it, how we get everything, right? How we get our, our cotton is tied to slavery and is now tied to the exploitation of people in, in places like Bangladesh and Pakistan. So, and, and in that process of getting these goods, what and, and keeping up with this, this ferocious consumer demand, it's meant stripping the land of everything it had and putting into it only things that were bad. And, and that, that mechanism has been, has been that, that like whole systematic mechanism has been fueled by the notion that people who are brown and black are laborers and that they don't own the means to production, that they are, that they are to be exploited. And that is rooted in a real comfort with white supremacy. And there that's, that, that you cannot, you cannot, whether you think that they can be 
um, remove from one another or not, the system suggests that they cannot just by based on who owns the means and who, who does the labor. And that has only been justified for so long through a white supremacist lens that says that those people are designed to do those things and they should be lucky to have a job at all, which I've heard people say. Mm. 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 Yeah, that winner takes all approach and just what you said, everything that is so deeply ingrained in our society about profits high, cost low, you know, no matter what it quote unquote costs, literally. And beyond that, totally, I totally agree with that. And beyond that, it also has displaced the ownership over land from indigenous people who for millennia understood the relationship between all plant, all, all flora and fauna. Right. And so what ends up happening is, you know, we look at the case of Australia, which was literally burning to the ground not that long ago. There were indigenous practices that the Aborigines had that prevented those kinds of brush fire, fires, excuse me, those brush fires from happening. But when you disrupt, when you displace indigenous peoples, as we did in this country, we lose control and we lose access to this really deep well of knowledge about what that balance is supposed to look like, about when to tell when a plant is sick, about when, what to use as an herbal response to a, to an, a, a phenomenon of pain or suffering. So this, this white supremacist thinking that indigenous people don't have knowledge, that they don't have quote unquote control, that they, they couldn't quote unquote use the resources to their potential, that undermining of that tradition, of those collective traditions because of white supremacy has actually caused an amazing depletion um, in our understanding of the world around us. Such an important point. There's the whole, you know, acronym, you know, POC, people of color, right? But then there's the BIPOC, which is black and indigenous people of color. So white listeners out there who don't know of this acronym, let's all educate ourselves. And this is uh, an acronym acknowledging that though all people of color definitely face their unique set of challenges, you know, there really is an inherent extreme level of injustice um, and it really, this term acknowledges that Black and Indigenous populations are the one who have had intense suffering under, as you mentioned, white supremacy, imperialism, colonialism, classism, and, and systematic oppression. So that's just in, in this re-educating and educating of our listeners, that term. And then you brought up even, right, the whole idea of neo-racism. And please feel free to extrapolate or, you know, educate me. <laughs> Um, on any of these points where neo-racism is this whole relatively newer concept that speaks to um, prejudices and discrimination based on cultural differences between ethnic or racial groups. So this would include the, the notion that some cultures are superior to others or that other cultures are fundamentally incompatible and shouldn't coexist in the same state or society. So that's another, I think, really important term, neo-racist, um, speaking to, to that. Wow. So much. So much. Yeah. So did you want to comment on anything there or should we keep going in our closing? I think we can keep going in our closing. I think okay. you, I think you made, you wrote some, you raised some really good points and I'm going to let that sit there. Let that marinate. Cool. Cool. <laughs> 
So lastly, to touch in on your clothes, which are both elegant and hip. And one of the things I love about them, being a person who loves words, is that some of them have phrases on them, like disruptor, sustainable shit only, and cash bailout, and wonderful um, diet, uh, aphorisms pertaining to the earth. Um, can you extrapolate on how you chose these words to inlay on your beautiful clothing and how this is a powerful form of dismantling many of the broken systems in our society? Yeah, you know, art has always been one of the, the uh, provocateurs of change in, in, every, in every civilization for always. Art has always been the place where, where truth had a, had a house. I was reading a book, I started reading a book this week um, by this woman whom I love. I just, she's just so brilliant, Adrienne Marie Brown. And, and the opening to this book, which is called Pleasure Activism, is the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. Mm, I love that. And it's not her quote. Uh, the, the quote actually comes from another woman who she called, her name is Tony Cade Bambara. And again, the quote is, the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. So in thinking about the screen prints, um, it's about how do we get, how do we give people what they want to say? We, you know, how do we help people say it, say their values with their chest? You know, don't whisper it, say it with your chest. Um, and so the screen prints exist in that way. So I think about what are the things that I want to say? What are the things that feel real for me and, and important to articulate? When I think about our community, which is so diverse, the Grand Boulevard community is so diverse. It's people who identify as Muslim and queer, um, poor, you know, I mean, well-traveled and never left the country. Um, how, do I, how do I produce something that they can all get behind? And so, and so that's what I try to lean into is that intuition about about the, the, the garments as being uh, just another canvas. Mm, that is fabulous. So, so juicy. And just, um, yeah, I really feel into that now. When I see the clothes on my spirit, like literally leaps, yes! You know, and again, that is not usually my response to clothing. Um, but not only the aesthetic is so really just, elegant and I have a shirt from you all that's so comfortable isn't it interesting and, to me how there are so many there literally are millions of tons of textiles that will end up either incinerated or in landfills and it's just because we just you know it just takes time to breathe new life into them but there's so many beautiful fabrics out there beautiful and yeah can you please just um like articulate for everyone because I don't know if we touched on that just how every piece of your clothing, right, is recycled, correct? Yep. So we don't use, you know, up until this point, we're, we're thinking about scaling, which is another, this is, that's a whole nother conversation, but we've, we've, we are preparing to move into another phase of our growth. Um, but one, one thing that will always be a part of Grand Boulevard is our commitment to using fabrics that already exist and then reimagining them. So for us, that means going to, um, thrift stores, consignment shops, boutiques, and getting garments that are, have already been created. So that's how we avoid new water waste is by using fabric that exists and then reimagining it. So as a, as a woman who very much so identifies as a black feminist, 
I love the idea of taking back things that were once owned by men and then regendering them for a broader, more feminine, more female-centric energy. Um, and so that's what I use garments to do is we take men's shirts and we add some sauce to them. And that's one, that's one of the things that we do. And it's one of the things that we'll always do. So when we say we're no new waste, what that means is, is that we don't, we, we don't buy bolts of fabric, um, not even dead stock. I mean, at least not to date. And then to reimagine them to date, everything that people buy from us is one of one. So while you might buy a, a shirt that's from a collection that um, is a part of one of these, you know, in mass incarceration or in cash bail. Every piece you have is the only one that is one of one. It's, and that's part of the art of it. Really, really, as I've said several times now, you are a visionary. Thank you, Kimberly, for truly being a trailblazer on so many fronts. It's extraordinary. Gratitude and major props for your deep wisdom tireless activism and commitment to education in so many arenas and sectors of the population. I'm so grateful for the deep Dharma download you offered our listeners today. You can find Kimberly and her profound work in the world online, grantblvd.com, company's name, Grant Boulevard. So again, that's grantblvd.com. And she is so generously offering my Patreon supporters 15% off one item in her sustainable clothing company, which makes truly elegant and hip pieces that do not harm Mama Earth and support her staff, many of whom are immigrants, returning citizens from incarceration, and those working through homelessness. So go to her website and support her visionary and activated business. Also, you can head over to my Patreon page and consider supporting my work at patreon.com backslash modern mystic love. That's patreon.com backslash modern mystic love. And you can get Kimberly's amazing 15% offer whether you donate at the $5, $10, $30, or $50 level. On social, you can find Kimberly at Kimberly McGlone. That's Kimberly, one M, one L, M, C, G, L, O, N, N, or at Grant Boulevard, which is Grant B L V D. Thank you so much, Kimberly, for being with us today. You are so welcome. Thank you for having me. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you for taking these words in. I hope they ground, inform, and inspire you on your journey of the mystic path. If you like what you heard, please write me a review on whichever platform you are listening. Also, check out my exciting Patreon page at patreon.com slash modernmysticlove, where I offer all sorts of uplifting yoga classes, meditation classes, and other amazing offerings from my guests on this podcast to all my incredible supporters. Even folks who donate at the $5 a month level are so appreciated as every cent helps this busy mama of three. Or check out my website, modernmystic.love, where you can purchase yoga videos of all levels with me, ranging from gentle yoga up through advanced asana, and also meditation videos there. 
Keep on meeting the present moment where the magic lives, one breath at a time. Namaste.